the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Heart of Innovation, 60 minutes that can save life and limb with new breakthrough ideas and innovation changing the healthcare landscape. Brought to you by patient advocacy group, thewaytomyheart.org, in partnership with Abbott. Here are your hosts for the Heart of Innovation, Emmy Award-winning journalist and founder of The Way to My Heart, Kim McNicholas, and interventional cardiologist and founder of the Save My Piggies Health Education Series, Dr. John Phillips. Blood clots are a common occurrence that can have fatal consequences. However, they can be prevented by understanding the risk factors, recognizing the signs, and seeking prompt medical attention. This is an important topic, especially with World Thrombosis Day taking place annually on October 13th. And it's really personal for me as well, because back in 2012, my mom ended up with a pulmonary embolism, a clot the doctor had told me traveled from somewhere possibly behind her knee and ended up getting stuck in the arteries around her lungs or the veins around her lungs. We're going to get into the details of that and let Dr. Tu, who is here with us, go into the details and explain what may have happened there and possible treatment options that are now available that weren't back in 2012. So, gosh, I wish, Dr. John Phillips, that, you know, we had greater treatment options. All my mom was put on, I think at the time, was a little heparin drip and she was sent home on Coumadin. But now I hear there's a lot more available for patients. Yeah. I mean, if you want to talk about kind of a field and peripheral disease, so it's not arterial disease. Now we're talking about the vein. So a different highway that has really kind of exploded with some new technology that realistically is pretty quite is pretty simple right but the devil's in the details that now allows us to treat patients pretty quickly removing the clot without exposing them for the most part to medications that 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 can can cause significant bleeding problems and so not everybody who has a blood clot in their leg or in their lungs needs an invasive procedure Um, but a lot you know up until you know, last five, six, seven years or so prior to that, we were treating a lot of these folks with, with blood thinners, whether it's injectable through an IV and then sending them home with an oral medication. In some cases we were using, I call, you know, we call them clot busting medicine. So real potent uh, medications that break up the clot, but also have uh, adverse uh, side effects. Uh, Bleeding is one of them. And one of the most catastrophic things that can happen is bleeding into the brain, which, you know, no one should, should die from a head bleed who has a, a, a blood clot in their leg or their lungs that's not, you know, life-threatening. And so um, really looking forward to speaking with Dr. Tu about his his role with a, a, a device company that really has kind of paved the way for us to treat blood clots both in the lungs and in the legs very quickly, safely. And before we jump into the thick of it, how about a moment of inspiration? Dr. John Phillips, spectacular, vascular moment of inspiration. Yes. So, um, you know, preparing a quote for today, I thought, let's do a little research on history of pulmonary embolism. Again, blood clots to the lungs and DVT or deep venous thrombosis. So Rudolf Virchow uh, was um, basically credited with discovering pulmonary emboli in the mid-1800s. Uh, he did autopsy studies and found he was a pathologist and he, he found blood clots in, in the patient's pulmonary arteries that had died. So uh, and, and another interesting tidbit is several years later, I forget the date exactly, but Trent Bellenberg was a surgeon who who did the first kind of therapeutic or invasive procedure. He did an open, so open the patient's chest, open the pulmonary arteries 
and three folks tried to pull out some clot. These patients were very sick um, and unfortunately died. This was before we had blood thinners and things of that nature. So despite the field being almost 200 years old, it's taken us, and Tom will tell us here shortly when exactly they started dealing, you know, thinking about using uh, basically tubes and suction to suck out the clot, but it's taken us a while to to get to where we are. But one of the quotes that uh, Verkow had, he had many of them, um, he, he liked to speak on faith and science and things of that nature, but I thought this was kind of cool because it sums up what we do in medicine or what we try to do as medical professionals. And also, Kim, to your extent too, helping people with the weight of my heart and being an advocate. So he's quoted as saying, first, it must be a pleasure to study the human body, the most miraculous masterpiece of nature, and to learn about the smallest vessel and the smallest fiber. But second, and most important, the medical profession gives the opportunity to alleviate the troubles of the body, ease the pain, to console a person who is in distress, and to lighten the hour of death, many a sufferer. But uh, let's let's get into the meat of this conversation. Wow. You know, I, I see Dr. Thomas, too, smiling there. That resonates, doesn't it? Yeah, certainly. Uh, John and Kim, thank you so much for inviting me to participate. Please call me Tom. Um, John alluded to the fact that I wear two hats. I uh, am an interventional cardiologist by training. I practiced medicine and procedural medicine for almost 20 years in Louisville, Kentucky, um, now I wear a different uh, hat. I'm a medical executive for a company that's developed tools to treat patients suffering from uh, blood clots, particularly venous thromboembolism. And, uh, you know, that quote uh, that uh, uh, you, you, you cited to, uh, really resonated with me. I think the idea of merging the study of the human body and the scientific principles required to innovate with the real ultimate mission of alleviating human suffering and providing comfort to those in need and perhaps prolonging life where possible, I think really resonates with me. And I, I'm, I'm so pleased to be able to uh, talk about this, this very important disease state and uh, some of the things that we're doing to try to help uh, in that regard. And I'm curious, what made you leave the practice and actually join industry? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I started my medical career, um, actually with the intention of being a, uh, molecular biologist. I was interested oh, wow. more on the scientific side of exploring, uh, the nature of, uh, biology of human, mm-hmm. uh, DNA. And, uh, I, uh, was introduced to the medical profession through medical research. And, uh, in medical school, I started taking care of patients as part of my training and realized that I actually enjoyed the delivery of healthcare and really being at the patient's, uh, side using brains and hands to try to, uh, uh, alleviate human suffering more so than I did the, uh, uh the benchtop research. And uh, I ended up training to be an interventional cardiologist, someone who cares a lot about cardiovascular medicine, uh, not just heart, but also blood vessels. And in the practice of medicine uh, for, uh, as I said, almost 20 years, what I realized was, although we had made tremendous strides in treatment of patients with heart attack and with stroke, the top two leading cardiovascular killers, The third leading cardiovascular killer, which is pulmonary embolism, what we're going to be talking about today, uh, was really pretty rudimentary. Um, I probably spent a total of an hour learning about this disease state in medical school. I didn't have any specific training during my cardiology fellowship about this disease state and really had a lot of misconceptions about this disease that uh, certainly, uh, uh, you know, I was faced with treating patients who ended up with this condition and realized we didn't have the tools nor the complete understanding of this disease state. And when offered the chance to really dive into um, uh, learning more about this disease and helping patients directly with innovation and new tools, uh, I really uh, saw the opportunity to uh, perhaps help patients at a very different uh, scale than I was as a treating physician. It's nice to actually have that opportunity because I, it's already frustrating for a patient to hear from a doctor that there's nothing we can do. But I would imagine that even more frustration on the doctor's part to not be able to do anything and to feel like their hands are tied, like, there's nothing here for me. 
Yeah, I, 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 it, it, that what you say resonates with me. I can tell you offhand, I can think of five patients, uh, that I took care of that, uh, really, um, highlighted the powerlessness that I had yeah. as a physician to, uh, not fully understand and comprehend the nature of the disease state. And even if, if I knew what was going on, not having the tools at my disposal, whether they're medications or, uh, 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 you know, procedural, uh, tools to, to help solve what John has, you know, stated outright is, you know, in theory, a very simple problem. And luckily, uh, we were able to make some breakthroughs in the past several years that have really changed not just how we treat patients, but how we think about this disease uh, altogether. And we can't wait to hear all about that next, right here on The Heart of Innovation. So stay with us. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody, and thanks for joining us. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Tom Tu, who is an executive in a, uh, at the company of um, Inari, who they specialize in, quite frankly, sucking out blood clots. So, Tom, it, before we went to break, you know, you shared some thoughts with the, the powerlessness that you had had. Um, now we don't have that necessarily uh, with some patients. And I, I can think of several patients, too, that we would see before we had the ability to, you know, remove the clot without using clot busting medicine. These people needed something done. We didn't really have any tools for them because we couldn't give them the clot busting medicine. And they did OK. But, you know, the long term side effects of pulmonary emboli blocking up the arteries going to the lungs and returning, you know, getting the blood back can be pretty, pretty profound. So let me, and, and I think of, I think of PE and DVT in the past as kind of the, the island of misfit toys. It's like, yeah, it's a diagnosis and okay, we put them on some heparin or Lovenox and then we switch them off to another medication. So tell me uh, like, at what point did you join Anari when, and, and, and you know, and why, and then how did you guys, start to develop, again, a very simple device that that worked so well or works so well? Uh, thanks for the question, John. So um, imagine me being a fairly young interventional cardiologist practicing in my newly adopted community and treating patients that I was trained to deal with, such as heart attack patients, patients with peripheral arterial disease, and then getting a phone call from the chief of our ICU, this I still remember this day, four in the morning, I wasn't even on call, and the ICU had said, hey, Tom, um, I wonder if you could help me with this patient who's, who's dying of a pulmonary embolism. And I said, well, that's not really a disease that I'm you know, uh, uh, trained to treat. And he said, yeah, but we've tried everything else. We've tried the clot-busting medicine. We've tried anticoagulation. It's a young healthcare provider, and he's literally dying. I heard you can you know, you're a whiz with catheters. Can you do something for this patient? And I said, wow, um, here I am faced with a problem I've never really dealt with before. But yeah, I, I understand the theory. Maybe we can do something for this person. And I, you know, uh, there, we have a saying uh, around here, if you don't know what to do, you do what you know. And so I did those things. I did a procedure to take pictures and measured pressures and saw the clot and used various tools that were really optimized for the heart to treat blood clots in the lung. And I don't know if I did anything good, but, you know, after an hour or two of work, he, he seemed to do better. And literally the next day he was off of uh, uh, his life support and, and ended up leaving the hospital and, and did well. And I still get uh, birthday cards from his mother uh, uh, thanking me for, for the work there. And I, my eyes were open to this whole new disease state that I was not really involved in where potentially we could help. Now imagine a couple years later, a very similar story, a young man who was in his 20s, literally the only reason why he was in the hospital is he fell off a curb or something and broke his ankle and was in a cast for uh, six weeks. Healthy young guy, but now came into the hospital with this huge blood clot and it was filling his lungs. And we tried all the usual treatments, including the clock busting medicines. And uh, I still remember saying, yes, we, we, we can try to help you, sir. And he said, whatever you do, you know, please keep me alive because I've got to live for my, you know, newborn child and, and my wife. And uh, I said, well, sir, you know, we're going to do everything we can 
And I don't know if you've ever been sick in the hospital and your life is on the line and the, the doctor says, we're going to do everything we can rather than, oh, you're going to be fine. Um, that that's that's usually a sign. Right. It's it's a sign that we, yeah. we don't think it's going to be a good outcome. And sure enough, despite everything we tried, uh, he I, I couldn't save his life. And and that feeling of of powerlessness to know that. It's a problem that that I understand, you know, fairly well and yet didn't have the tools to treat really left a mark on me. Um, a few years later, uh, a colleague of mine who was in the medical technology industry came by uh, my town and said, hey, I'm working for this new company that's trying to develop tools for pulmonary embolism, this problem. And, and I saw the it was a first generation device. It was like Tinker Toys, and it was sort of uh, not ready to be used in human beings yet. But it had a lot of the elements of things that my career had been based on, such as sucking out blood clots, such as large bore access, mechanical tools to disrupt clot. And I said, wow, you know, there's a chance this could work. And Going from that stage of concept to then actually working on the device to get it to be safely used in human beings, to then do the clinical studies, uh, to get FDA approval for that device, and then, you know, kind of making the iterations on it. You know, we started with one concept and shifted to a very different concept thanks to some of the uh, uh, observations I made actually, uh, you know, uh, with the device in clinical uh, trials. Uh, it was really an eye-opening experience. And like I said, I'd never intended to work for a medical device company, but seeing a disease state that I knew the impact of and how commonly how commonly it occurred across uh, uh, the world, and to see something new. I mean, I still remember the day where you know it worked and it worked so well, and my eyes got as big as saucers, and I knew that this was something that was really going to change the world. And the patient knew it as well because they were literally complaining that they were going to die, and then all of a sudden they said, "Doc, what did you do? I feel." back to normal again. And they knew something was up and the nurses could see right away. And uh, that, that was a very powerful day for me as a physician, as, as well as something that drove you know, me into um, a, a, a career that I'd never contemplated. And that's what's interesting is that there is this with PEs in particular and suck, sucking out that clot there, there is that instant gratification. There is that instant relief. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, so for the longest time, well, a couple of points. Number one, to Tom's point, these are often young patients who were in the hospital, bedridden, whatever. And no, you shouldn't get a blood clot in the hospital. I mean, like that's like the number one, in my mind, like the thing that we should be able to fix. But yet we, we still have that happen. But these are young people. A lot of the folks that we see with peripheral arterial disease are older and have a lot of comorbidities, health problems. But these are young folks. And, and, and my mom die. was very young. Yeah, and they die. And so the ability to to treat the patient quickly and safely and effectively, it's all, like as an interventional cardiologist, it's like treating a, a patient with a, an acute myocardial infarction. You open that artery and then they feel better. You clean out the clot and you don't have to clean everything out. You get the big chunks out and folks, folks feel better instantaneously. Tom, l- l- let me ask you this. Because for the longest time, it was acceptable to just put people on anticoagulation and send them home with blood clots, both in the legs and in the lungs. How do you, so you guys shifted the the paradigm. It was kind of uh, uh, the tectonic plates moved pretty significantly and there was an earthquake because every company now is chasing what you guys did for the, you know, in the PE space and the DVT space. But you got, you probably had a lot of folks that were like, you know what? We don't really need to treat these people. They're going to do okay. Yeah, they're on a little oxygen. Maybe they're a little short of breath. Why are you sticking a big garden hose up in their arteries and trying to suck out this clot? It's something that you really need to do because we struggle with that too when we interact with other physicians in different specialties in our health system. And I don't want to say you got to change them into a believer or not a believer in the treatment, but how did, how, how did you guys get over that hurdle? Yeah, well, it's a battle we still fight. And um, I will say that a lot of it has to do with what you're taught in medical school. You know, many physicians learn their point of view about treatment of disease. And then once they finish their training, that pretty much shuts off. And it's, uh, you know, the practice of medicine, the delivery of healthcare, not, you know, kind of staying up to date on new ways of thinking. And, uh, you know, I, 
I hearken back to the time as a young uh, cardiologist where we debated the value of doing intervention for heart attacks, right? There's, you probably don't remember that, John, but there's a time where we said, yeah, you know, uh, we don't really need to treat these heart attacks, right? The medicines work fine and only in very specific circumstances should we do intervention. And it took a lot of um, very courageous physicians, courageous patients to be involved in clinical studies to generate the data that proved that, yes, it was the right thing, and it was the right thing for a broad population of patients. And now we're at the point where the question for heart attack is more, do we have systems of care so that everybody has access to this kind of technology and this kind of care 24-7, no matter where they live, right? We're nowhere near that in venous thromboembolism. I think the vast majority of people who treat patients with venous thromboembolism are not aware of other treatment patterns, right? They only know anticoagulation. And so their natural belief system is, well, they all do fine. Patients do fine. Well, you lived, you know, what, what, what more do you want? Right. I don't know, Kim, about your mom and how she did with her pulmonary embolism, but if she survived her event, I bet you her treatment physicians probably said, oh, job well done. See, we, we gave her the medicine and she survived. What more do you want? It's quite possible now that we've studied this, that we find, oh, well, even if you survive, you're limited by trouble breathing. The rate of post-traumatic stress disorder after survival of a VTE event is like 90%. There are people who never feel the same afterwards. Can we improve not only their length of life with intervention, which I think there's an obviousness to, to that now, but also can we improve their quality of life? For those patients who maybe wouldn't have died from their pulmonary embolism anyway, does removing the clot, restoring the anatomy back to normal with a simple procedure reduce the chance that they're going to suffer from these long-term consequences? And that's where clinical data really is going to help drive this. And, you know, we're uh, uh, I'm very proud to work for a company that's committing lots of resources, not just to making products and selling them, but then to plow those resources back into clinical data. We're spending over $30 million this year alone in generating clinical data to help inform the scientific and medical communities about the value of this kind of intervention. And coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, we'll have more with Dr. Thomas too with Anari Medical, so stay with us. Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. We are continuing a really fascinating conversation, in my opinion. I think Kim would agree with uh, Tom, too, from Anari Medical. And uh, we've gotten some questions regarding blood clot formation, right? And, and I quoted Burkow, who he has a triangle about the kind of the theory about why blood clots occur with inflammation and the blood, you know, not flowing well. And then some, and some type of an event that causes uh, the, 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 the body to want to have uh, the cells clot together. So Tom, in give us your kind of layman's description of what a blood clot is. Why do they occur? Why do they occur mainly in the legs and not the arms and what do you know about some that want to go to the lungs and some that just want to stay put? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So the disease state we call venous thromboembolism or VTE. This is blood clot forming in the veins of the body. And uh, as you pointed to, Virchow's triad uh, points to three groups of kind of contributory factors. One is vessel injury. So a blood vessel has a lining to it. The blood plays along very nicely flowing through these tubes. But if the tube becomes injured, there's an activation of the clotting cascade where that blood now wants to clot presumably to try to prevent you from leaking blood out of a blood vessel, right? It's, there's a, an a, a, a evolutionary advantage to not bleeding to death if you injure a blood vessel. Um, the second contributor is hypercoagulability. So if your blood, for whatever reason, oftentimes now genetics uh, can increase your tendency to clot, sometimes inflammation, other kinds of infections or cancer can cause your blood to be more clotty. And then lastly is uh, what we call stasis. So if your vessels are compressed or if you're immobile for a length of time, your blood is not flowing as freely and that stagnant blood tends to clot as well. So for those three reasons, you can imagine a whole host of patients, young and 
and old, healthy and sick, all being potentially at risk for forming blood clot in the vessels of the leg. The leg is where you have a lot of the venous blood, and that's uh, an area of compression. You can imagine being on a long plane flight with your legs crossed. You can imagine some patients being born with certain anatomical features that uh, have inherent compression in their legs. But when the blood clot forms, because the blood vessel is so large, there's actually kind of flow around the blood clot. You're not aware when you form this. In fact, uh, oftentimes you have a wall adherent uh, 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 clot that uh, can be present for days or even weeks before you're aware of it. And as that clot continues to grow, growing towards the center of the vessel and growing up and down the leg, uh, you form what are called collaterals. Your body's able to form bypass channels around the clot and you still may not be symptomatic. And it's only when the clot grows large enough that it overcomes the body's ability to grow you know, bypass channels that you might develop pain or swelling in the leg as a first common symptom. Many patients will have that blood clot kind of loosen and break free, traveling through the circulation and eventually lodging uh, in uh, uh, the lungs as the first symptom that they had a blood clot. So these are things that um, uh, we're just starting to learn about the time course of these events. You know, if somebody has swelling today, that's possible that their blood clot started weeks ago. If somebody has a blood clot they tra that traveled to the lung and you say, oh, I felt it travel through my heart and into my lungs, that clot may be an evolution for several uh, days, if not weeks before uh, that event. The reason why the timing is important is because the nature of the stuff that's in the blood clot evolves over time. You know, when blood first clots, we're talking about venous clots now, it's this kind of what I call blood jello, right? You have stuff dissolved in the uh, bloodstream that is liquid. And when it gets activated, it forms these polymer crosslinks, just like how you make jello, right? It's uh, a liquid that turns into a hydrogel. And that's the first thing that forms blood clots. That's something that can be inhibited by anticoagulants, such as heparin or coumadin or now the uh, uh, NOAX. Um, and it could be something that could be actively degraded by the so-called clot busters, right? That's the, the effect of TPA and other kinds of drugs. But over time, over days and weeks, that blood jello is replaced by fibrous tissue, uh, collagen, connective tissue, infiltrating uh, uh, fibroblasts and things like that. Now it becomes more like a scar tissue than it, than it is a clot. And all the anticoagulants in the world, all of the clot busters in the world won't break that stuff down. That stuff needs to be mechanically removed or incorporated into the wall uh, for the body to, to form a channel again. And that's uh, all new observations that have come out of the fact that we can extract these clots and examine them. Uh, under the microscope and, and, and in the lab to, to really understand what we're dealing with. So, Tom, can I ask you to explain to our listeners the difference between a blood clot in the veins versus the arteries? And why, why do you get more clots in the veins than, I mean, yes, we get blood clots in the heart, um, and that's your heart attack. But for the most part, people aren't having a lot of blood clots in their, in their arter arteries of the legs. Why, why, why the difference? Yeah, yeah, that's a, a, a great uh, distinction to make, you know, especially uh, uh, being uh, uh, so close to uh, World Thrombosis Day and, and, and interested in, uh, interest in clots, right? And I know this audience has a particular interest in peripheral arterial disease, and that's a very important uh, uh, disease state. But there's some important similarities and differences between artery disease and vein disease. Uh, so uh, you're familiar with peripheral arterial disease, similar to coronary artery disease, blockages of the heart. There's some narrowing of the pathways and then maybe some subsequent uh, blood clot formation that's part of the uh, a final pathway that occludes these vessels. That kind of clot is very small. If you took out a blood clot that's responsible for a heart attack or an acutely uh, blocked leg, it might be, you know, tens of milligrams, might be the size of a rice grain. That is life-threatening clot if, if it's in a certain location, right? If it's in your heart, you could have a major heart attack. If it's in your brain, you could have a major stroke. You could lose part of your leg if it's uh, in your lower extremity. Blood clots in the venous system are different in that they're much larger. They're a thousand times the size, the clot. So the kind of clot I'm talking about in a DVT is like handfuls of clot. Hundreds of grams of clot. That why uh, is that? Wow. It's because the vessels are so much bigger, and yeah. the clot can form over time because the um, uh, uh, the body can form collateral channels around it. So when you clot off your leg in the vein, you may not have that 
uh, uh, bad of a, a set of symptoms that drives you to attention. It may be an evolution for days or weeks. And so that little bit of swelling in the leg could be that first sign that, you know, that kind of cramping in the leg when you walk. It could be arterial disease, but it could also be the sign of uh, a DVT. And if you don't catch it early, that clot may be very, very extensive by the time it presents. You know, I know a lot of the mission for this organization and the people on this call is to highlight um, the sort of under-recognition of peripheral arterial disease. But I'll tell you, venous disease is even far less recognized. And you were very generous to say, well, maybe the doctors are simplifying it for patients. But the truth is, many doctors don't really understand this condition as well. I didn't understand this condition as well. And I, you know, am somebody who prided himself on being a very educated uh, interventional cardiologist. It just wasn't something that there was a lot of knowledge about. And so we were taught very limited things about uh, blood clots in the veins, blood clots uh, that travel to the lungs. Um, you know, I like to tell it this way. It, we know so much about heart disease and stroke now that if you had a heart attack, you would expect to go see a heart doctor and have a heart procedure and have take heart medicines. And there's a follow-up that would be very uh, well uh, kind of uh, uh, developed and you would have expectations about the expertise there, right? The same is true for a brain attack, right? You would see a brain doctor and have a brain procedure and follow up with a brain doctor. There is no such thing as a pulmonary embolism doctor or a DVT doctor. It could be a vascular surgeon. It could be a vascular medicine doctor, an interventional cardiologist, radiologist, a general practitioner, a hospitalist, an ER doctor. All of these different types of doctors, quote unquote, treat your blood clot because there's very little known about it. And I think one of the things that I'm hoping to really inspire is the development of a set of expert physicians who can really have the knowledge base about modern treatments for this disease. Tommy, you, you bring up some excellent points. We're coming up on a break, so stay with us. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Two. Our bodies have a vast network of more than 60,000 miles of blood vessels that nourish our organs, our muscles, our tissues, and our nerves with vital oxygen and nutrients for survival. However, any form of blockage can halt this crucial flow of life-saving resources. Hello, I'm Kim McNicholas, a patient advocate, bringing you this week's medical notepad sponsored by Abbott and The Way to My Heart. Today, we will be discussing blood clots. Blood clots, which are clusters of blood, can rapidly obstruct the highways within our bodies, posing a significant threat to life and limb. These clots can occur in both the arteries, which are responsible for carrying blood away from the heart, and the veins, responsible for returning blood to the heart. Certain individuals may be at a higher risk of developing blood clots due to medical conditions such as cancer, heart failure, or inherited blood disorders that affect normal clotting abilities. Extended periods of immobility, such as a post-surgery recovery or long trips, especially by airplane, can also increase the likelihood of developing blood clots, especially in the veins. Hormone therapy is another prominent risk factor for blood clots. And sometimes, individuals may experience the formation of blood clots as a way to repair damaged blood vessels caused by a variety of factors, such as smoking, diabetes, allergies, or even autoimmune conditions. Now, in this scenario, platelets, which are blood cells, adhere to the injured vessel and release chemicals that attract more platelets and what are called fibrin. Now, fibrin, which is a protein that aids in blood clotting, forms a mesh to capture additional platelets and additional fibrin, ultimately creating a patch for the damaged part of the vessel. Now, the danger lies in the fact that blood clots have the potential to break away and travel to the lungs, the heart, or veins, posing a life-threatening situation. They also have the ability to solidify, forming thrombus, and completely block a vein or artery, which may also be life and also limb-threatening. Therefore, it is crucial to consult with your doctor to determine if you are at risk of blood clots and, if so, how to minimize that risk. Once you do have a blood clot, time is of the essence to seek 
urgent medical attention. But how do you know if you actually have a blood clot? Well, symptoms of a blood clot can differ depending on its size and whether it is located in a vein or in an artery. The severity of these symptoms also relies on the underlying cause. Some common signs and symptoms of a blood clot may involve swelling and tenderness, even warmth in the skin. In more serious cases, individuals may experience chest pain, shortness of breath, and dizziness. If any of these symptoms occur, it is crucial to call the emergency transportation or promptly visit the nearest emergency department. With this week's medical notepad brought to you by Abbott, I'm Kim McNicholas, patient advocate with The Way to My Heart. Remember, the advice and views offered in this series are for educational and informational purposes only. Always check with your own healthcare provider before acting on any information provided in this series. And if you have any questions about blood clots, go to thewaytomyheart.org and get in touch with a navigator to help answer any questions you might have. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. So, Tom, before we went to break, you were speaking to not only the lack of awareness that exists, for patients about DVTPE, but also within the, the community, the medical community. So that's a pretty big boulder to push up a hill because there are people to this day who don't believe that we should be treating some of these folks where you have seen it. I've seen it. I mean, I became a believer when we had a patient who a young man, he, I'll tell the story because it still gives me goosebumps, but he was dropping his children off at school and he's in the, you know, the drop off lane or whatever. And he drops his kids off and he says, you know, I just, I don't feel good. And there was a teacher who looked at him and said, you don't look good. You need to maybe go home. She followed him home and he collapsed. So he, he lost consciousness. She called the squad, rushed him to our hospital we figured out pretty quickly that he had a massive pulmonary embolism and, and this was during business hours. And so myself and a good friend of ours, Mitch Silver, we brought him to the catheterization suite and literally the two of us within probably 10 minutes, we had your device in his pulmonary area sucking out the clot. And, you know, the guy walked out the next day, which really was amazing. But there are still people that, that don't necessarily think we should be, and that was a little bit of extreme, but there's a lot of folks that push back. So you want to raise, raise awareness and educate folks. So how do you guys go about that? Our show is about innovation. How are you innovating? Yes, with your devices, but also with the people that use them. And my follow-up question is, Do you th- you said you wanted to create a group of specialized interventionalists. Do you think everybody should be using your devices to treat folks with pulmonary embolism or DVT? Yeah. Those are great questions, John. So, um, so a couple of things. One is um, our company believes in what we call the four pillars. These are the four different ways that we think we can uh, best influence patient care. One is in training and education, right? There's a huge unmet need here for both interventional physicians, people who use our devices to treat patients, to train them to use them in the best way possible to get the best possible uh, outcomes for patients, but also to train the broader group of physicians who interact with these patients, who make the diagnosis, right? The emergency room is a great place to start. This is where 70% of patients with pulmonary embolism and DVT present and helping those emergency room physicians understand there's uh, more options for, for, for care. Uh, second uh, pillar is clinical research. I talked already about uh, the amount of effort that we're putting into generating high-level clinical data to help sway opinion from some of the uh, folks who are uh, a little more skeptical about new ways of treatment. Of course, data will help that quite a bit. Third is in research and development. We, uh, of course, uh, uh, have developed groundbreaking uh, devices, but we continue to iterate them, right? Because the better and better uh, we can get outcomes for patients, the, the the more likely we can help people. And the last one is the one I'd like to emphasize. That's in program building, right? The mission for our program building is not to make sure everybody gets our procedure, right? That's not really the point. The point is to make sure that all physicians, all, all patients who develop 
uh, uh, venous thromboembolism, have the opportunity to consult with an expert who understands the disease state, right? So rather than the person who's the last time they thought about this disease was 30 years ago in medical school and haven't really kept up on uh, uh, modern therapies, that they go to somebody who is actually involved in uh, uh, kind of the most up-to-date research. Just like how if you had a heart attack these days, you wouldn't be satisfied being treated by anybody other than a cardiologist for that disease state and a stroke specialist for stroke. Why wouldn't you want a VTE specialist being involved in the care of, of, of that disease? Now, part of what you guys are doing at Inari is going out to primary, if I understand it correctly, the primary care physicians and, and ER doctors and, and educating them. Do you find that some people that leaves a, a an un pleasant taste in their mouth? Like, should industry really be interacting with these specialists or, 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 or not? I mean, obviously you guys do it, but what, what are your thoughts on that if you get pushback? It's a coalition of the willing. You know, we are very transparent in what we're doing, right? We talk about the disease state. We talk about what we know, what we don't know, and our beliefs about what our devices can do. But when we interact with uh, emergency room physicians, I would say the vast majority of them are very thankful to hear new ways of thinking and new uh, scientific discoveries. Some of them might be interested in our device and, uh, you know, want to learn more about it. Some of them just say, wow, thanks a lot. I, I learned a lot. Is there anybody in my hospital that I can count on as a vascular specialist that I might uh, want to uh, in- include in the care of my patients when I make this diagnosis, right? And just that level of interaction can really help patients, right? So that they get a higher level of expertise involved in what is, turns out to be a very complex disease and one that has new treatment options. Yeah. One of my greatest frustrations um, that, that I have in running a patient advocacy organization and, and working with peripheral artery disease in, in particular, but now I'm seeing it also as you're speaking uh, with pulmonary embolisms and other issues of the venous system is I just don't understand that doctors get into practicing medicine because it's about practicing medicine. And yet, when you have these new innovative tools and techniques that could give them, you know, at least an option to try to save a a patient's life or a patient's limb, if all else has failed, like, why not try? And yet a doctor will say to us, there's not enough evidence. Well, how do you create evidence? Someone's got to try it. And I love the story that you shared in the beginning, which speaks volumes to your character. And I know this is true also for Dr. John Phillips and in, in his cases as well, is, you know, you try things. You're willing to use what you know and apply it, even if it is in a different way. Because we, tr- we treat so many patients with pulmonary embolism and DVT in our hospital. And the thing that makes you a good physician, because uh, to Tom's point, when I graduated fellowship and came to work, I didn't treat pulmonary embolism. We didn't treat DVTs. We anticoagulated, but I mean, that was it. And if you're really sick, you got lytics or clot busting agents. So number one, you have to ha- have an open mindset to to adapt a new technology. But it's more than that. It's a, it's, it's a new it's a paradigm shift, right? I mean, it's thinking differently about something. But yeah. what also happens, in my opinion, and Tom, you can comment on this as well. You you, you get a lot of you know, you know there's a, the the adage you know you have to kiss a lot of frogs to get the prince or princess. You get you see a lot of consults for things that don't need anything, but that's where you learn like okay, I, I think I should treat this patient, but I don't necessarily have to treat with with an invasive procedure, but I don't necessarily have to treat that patient. And there's other technologies out there that we can use as well. but you're you're getting outside the box, you're doing what's right for the patient and you're learning. We're continuing in my opinion, continuing to evolve how we treat patients, who needs treatment, what type of treatment. And, and that's what's kind of fun about it. I, I don't want people to think that everybody needs treatment for a pulmonary embolism and everybody needs treatment for a DVT. But to Tom's point, now there's an opportunity for those who need it to get evaluated. So, And coming up next right here on The Heart of Innovation, we're going to hear Tom's response and his final thoughts next. So stay with us. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. 
That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. We have about five minutes left of the show. So, Tom, I was on my soapbox about the whole education and and, uh, patient awareness and and things of that nature. So do you have any thoughts on on my diatribe? Yeah. um, You know, it's a culture shift, right? And uh, like any other population, physicians are a group of individuals who um, have varying opinions. And, uh, you know, it's what I realize being on this side of the fence now is that it's an incredible amount of effort to get the majority of people to start shifting their belief system, but they will over time, right? What convinces people is stories, their personal experience, seeing the effects that new therapies have, like uh, your patients, that you described, John. I think uh, telling that story really has a, a meaningful impact to physicians. And then, of course, clinical data and, and, and that kind of thing is also very valuable. Um, what I would say um, from the patient perspective, right, I think bringing it back to the patient is, is, is critical. Many of your audience probably wonders, do I have a blood clot? What uh, kind of things should I worry about? Uh, I think the signs and symptoms of a blood clot in the leg are somewhat nonspecific. And uh, the good news is the testing is pretty straightforward to, uh, to, to make the diagnosis. If you have swelling, in one leg and not the other. That's oftentimes a sign. If you have cramping pain, uh, you know, in the hip or behind the knee, uh, along with swelling, that certainly could be a sign. And certainly, you know, kind of a, a, an abrupt discoloration of your leg. I've seen uh, patients who they just look down and their leg turned purple. Uh, yeah, that is uh, something where, uh, uh, you know, seeking uh, medical advice and, and uh, uh, diagnosis could be very useful. Uh, the test for a DVT, a blood clot in the leg, is oftentimes an ultrasound, which is a non-invasive, no-risk kind of procedure, so uh, can be very useful. Uh, blood clot in the lung is more serious, more urgent. You know, that oftentimes will show itself through trouble breathing. Uh, people sometimes say they almost passed out or they feel very dizzy. They get sick all of a sudden and then notice their heart is beating fast and they can't breathe. If you can't finish a sentence without panting or getting out of breath and that happened all of a sudden, uh, that that certainly could be a blood clot. To diagnose that in the emergency room, it's really um, a CAT scan is the modern way to do that. Uh, it's a special kind of CT scan. It's called a CT angiogram of the chest. Uh, you probably don't need to know that by name. The physicians taking care of you can do a history and physical, do some simple blood tests and kind of make a decision. Do you need a, a CT scan to diagnose blood clots or not? Where I think patients should focus is more what happens when I do have that diagnosis, right? Am I getting the right kind of care? Am I getting the right kind of advice? Um, you know, many physicians, uh, you know, like I said, aren't fully aware of uh, uh, the extent of this disease state. And I think a simple question like, um, uh, you know, who is the vascular specialist here that uh, ex- has expertise in blood clots? Do you have doctors who do these kinds of procedures? Not that you need the procedure per, per se, but generally those that have the ability to provide that care are much more invested in the disease state and therefore are more knowledgeable about uh, what the right treatment care should be. So I do think patient advocacy, you know, uh, advocating for yourself really uh, can make a difference in this disease. And so when you're talking about, you know, do they treat it? Well, of course, they're going to say, yeah, we treat it. We, we treat everything. No problem. Just come to us. We have great doctors here. We're a big name facility. But what specifically can they ask for? We train our patients, empower them with all of the treatment options to discuss with their doctors. Um, do they just use medicine? Do they use clot busting medicine? Do they use tools that suck out the clot? I would imagine that that would be something that would be critical to determine, well, is this a place that might have the most advanced treatment options for me in case that I need them? Yeah. I yeah. I mean, I, I, sorry, Tom, I would just say real quickly, you have um, the blood clot in the leg. You probably want to ask some questions. Where's the clot? You know, is there a vascular specialist that, that could, I could see in the lungs? I mean, we're, you know, I don't know too many patients that are going to be be asking for for treatment because they're getting treatment, they're getting evaluated, and it's really that's where the ER physician um, be, plays a role in in knowing of what could be what should be offered, what could be offered for the patient. Yeah, real quick, right, I just want to offer you know ahead of time. It's nice to, you know, be prepared just in case. Yeah, I I, I want to leave your viewers with two quick words that might help them 
fine care that could be uh, very useful. If you know the term thrombectomy, that's removal of the blood clot. And if you know the term PERT, which is PE response team, those are oftentimes markers of centers that have developed a little more expertise in how they think and approach uh, uh, this disease. Thank you so much, Dr. Thomas, too. We really appreciate you joining us. Um, and if anyone wants to review the show again, they can go to theheartofinnovation.org. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks, Thank everybody. You. You've been listening to The Heart of Innovation with Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Our mission is to help patients live a better quality of life through comprehensive education, real-time support, and high-touch advocacy in partnership with thewaytomyheart.org and Abbott. Our purpose is to reduce the 1.5 million heart attacks and strokes and nearly 200,000 amputations annually. For more information regarding topics you've heard discussed on today's program, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. The Heart of Innovation is for educational and informational purposes only, and advice and views shared are not a substitute for medical advice from your own supervising physician. Do not act on any information provided in this show without the explicit consent from your own healthcare team. If you think you are having a medical emergency, call your local emergency number or go to the nearest hospital or emergency room. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.